Hello, Austin. Hey, Ariel. I hope you're feeling energized today because we are going to enter into episode two of our series, The Story of Tanasi. I am uh, on the edge of my seat waiting to see how things shake out. <laughs> so in the last episode, we learned all about the vast history of human habitation of the Little Tennessee River Valley, and specifically about the Cherokee that seemed to rule the valley. That's right. And if you, listener, have not yet listened to part one of this series, I invite you to pause this episode and go back to listen and get some context for this story. Okay, let's begin. After the removal act sent thousands of Cherokees westward, the landscape began to change as white settlers moved in with attempts to conquer the wilderness. Many families who moved into the valley kept their roots there for generations. The valley became a smattering of farming communities, benefiting from the rich stockpile of eons-old composted soil. Much of our early history was around that area. Uh, Going back to the Cherokee Indians, they had burial grounds. So I remember hearing this voice in our introduction to the series. Who is this? This is John Cartwright in an archived interview in the Louis B. Nunn Center for Oral History. He was the last project manager of the Teleco project. And I'm not sure of, of, of all of how it got started, but, but TVA had this opportunity to buy enough land around Teleco Lake to create a new town. It's interesting that he's talking about this as a, quote, opportunity, because from my understanding about how this all happened, the residents of the Teleco area weren't given a lot of choice in the matter. Yeah, I think most of the people who lived through this would agree with you. Kind of an odd thing, uh, TVA bought the land, uh, 38,000 acres, I think is the amount. I think it was 16,000 underwater and 22,000 for development. So a lot more land around the reservoir than would actually be covered by the lake. And you got just the great recreation around the, the TVA lake. So that, the, the idea of TVA creating a new town just had a lot of appeal. So they kind of wanted to industrialize this area. This was kind of a a utopian vision of how uh, East Tennessee would be. That seems to be one thing they wanted to do, and build a new community, bring jobs, create a recreational area. This was one of the last sort of untouched areas within the purview of the Tennessee Valley Authority. But the valley was so good for agriculture that nobody was going to build a town there. And the Cherokee sites uh, the Great Mound at Tokwa was just sitting there. This is the story of Tanasi. This is the story about the epic battle to save the Little T. Today, we meet some of the last people to live and play in this river valley before it was flooded. People who have been defined by the beauty of the remote landscape and their struggle to save it. In part two of our series, The River's People. On Middle of Everywhere, sharing big stories from the small places we call home, I'm Austin Carter. And I'm Ariel Avery. Well, we, we lived in a little community called Jackson Community. I spent a day with one of the people who lived through this saga. I'm Carolyn Ritchie, and I'm a retired school teacher after 30 years in Knox County. 
We met under a shelter and sat on picnic tables in Fort Loudon State Historic Park. I was always proud to be from the country and on the farm. Carolyn's family was one of the many with ties to the land for over a hundred years on her father's side. Daddy's family had always lived in Loudoun County, so he was a born and raised. His ancestors were along the river. The Blankenships were some of the ones that had some of the, the older land. So he was a, from a family that owned land there for generations and generations. Our farm, the one that mom and daddy bought December of 1950, was about a mile of where Daddy grew up. And she told me all about what it was like growing up there. And we had such a beautiful view. Back Creek Knobs were the closest that you could see. And then beyond that were the, the ranges of the Chohawi. And then beyond that was the, the Smokies. And um, it was just beautiful. And then the seasons would change. You know, it was a good way to be connected to God and creation and, and, the, and all his wonderful works. Uh, there were three churches, one uh, Methodist and two Baptists. There was an old mill that produced milled flour, corn, and grains, and they would plane and dry wood and craft furniture. There was a kind of convenience store. There was also a blacksmith shop. That later turned into a welding shop. Uh, most people farmed, but some had smaller little plots and they worked in town, town meaning Loudon. We had a, a grammar school that went from first grade through eighth grade. Uh, and your teacher um, lived in the community. She was our Sunday school teacher. In the summer when we went to Bible school, to all the local, we took turns going on. It didn't matter what denomination, you went to all the Bible schools. We'd have fun night at school once a, a year, and they had pie suppers. She told me many stories about her memories of living there. And those kids would just run around like crazy and catch lightning bugs and, and play tag. And the many memorable characters they had. His name was Oscar, but we called him Ouch. He ran a trot line across the river. We googled and oogled that big old fish, and there it was. And then we had another character, and his name was Lee Stooksbury. Anyway, they played tricks all the time on Ouch. Oh, Ouch was furious. He came and he told Lee that Bigfoot had been in his watermelon patch. And so he just fussed and fumed, and Lee never let up. One woman in particular who played a big role in the struggle to come, Nellie McCall. And she was a spitfire of a little woman. She didn't care if she hurt your feelings or not. If she thought your yard was a little bit needed to be mowed, she'd just say, why, the people that lived here before sure took a whole heap better care of that place than you doing. It, it was just all interwoven. Everybody knew one another. It was a respectable community. And, of course, Carolyn and her family were major figures in the community and in this story. She lived in a four-bedroom farmhouse built in the early 1900s with her parents, her two sisters, and brother. The entire time I've known Carolyn, and every time I speak with her, her mother comes into the conversation. She seems to have lived this experience side by side with her mother, as Jean Ritchie tried to mediate the impact of the Teleco project on her family. A glimmer of what was to come happened when Carolyn was 11, and the Jackson Community School didn't have enough children to stay open. It wasn't like you all of a sudden saw him leave. It just sort of slowly happened, and being a kid yourself, you're not really aware that the school is getting smaller until Mama told me that there wasn't enough kids. And I cried and cried and cried. I did not want to leave my school. Hearing Carolyn talk about the history of her life and the area she grew up, it's amazing how present it seems to her. It's like it happened yesterday.
You know, as we dig into this story, it occurs to me that people listening may not have a fully fleshed out understanding of what TVA is and what they do. How timely you are. From my perspective, the TVA is a very proud agency, as they've provided a ton of resources for residents over the last 88 years. They put out many educational documentaries, like this one, called This is TVA. This is the Tennessee Valley, cradled by the ranges of the Unaka, the Iron, the Blue Ridge, the Great Smokies. And they employ all kinds of people with varying skills. They even have a corporate historian who I spoke with. So my name is Pat Ezell. Basically, I'm the agency expert on the history of TVA. A Great Depression had descended upon the people of the Tennessee Valley, as it also descended upon the nation. This part of the region faced multiple challenges in the 1930s. This valley was a problem area for the nation. There were long-time flooding issues. The undeveloped river, the undeveloped forest, the undernourished soil. The Tennessee River was what we call a non-navigable river. But the tools needed to develop these resources were lacking. That was 1933. And as bad as conditions were elsewhere in the nation, in most cases, they were worse here in the Tennessee Valley. The annual per capita income in the Valley region in 1933 was $168. Levels of literacy were low. The labor force was largely unskilled. Valley residents suffered from malnutrition. Um, Three out of five people in North Alabama suffered from malaria. It was a rough place to live. People needed help, and help actually came in the form of TVA. A lot of folks don't know that our roots actually go back to World War I. The nation needed nitrates for the manufacture of bombs. President Woodrow Wilson built two nitrate plants and a dam for hydroelectric power in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. But no sooner had the production of these nitrate plants begun than the war ended. So these plants were just sitting there. But a senator from Nebraska, George Norris, who was a big proponent of public power and rural electrification, had a vision. What he really wanted to do was look at this region holistically, what happened on the water impacted the land and vice versa, and also that things didn't stop at political boundaries, that you know you needed to look at this region as that whole watershed region that went across state lines. So he envisioned a way that these facilities could be used to provide power and fertilizer to the people of the valley. In 1933, Franklin Roosevelt becomes president as the depressed nation searches for salvation. It was almost a perfect storm. You had the facilities at Muscle Shoals, you had the onset of the Great Depression, the election of FDR, and you had the terrible situation in the Valley region. On May 18, 1933, FDR signs the TVA Act. As part of Roosevelt's New Deal, the TVA would bring the resources of the valley to the people of the valley. And that, of course, was a huge change in people's lives. In fact, there's this quote, I love to share it, it's from a Tennessee Valley farmer, and he says, the greatest thing on earth is to have the love of God in your heart, and the next greatest thing is to have electricity in your house. (laughs) 
And thus, the TVA has managed the resources of the Tennessee Valley ever since. Our mission has always been the same. Our mission is to serve the people of the Tennessee Valley. It's to improve the quality of life for the people of the Tennessee Valley. And we do this through energy, economic development, and environmental stewardship. But we know, based on what we've heard, that not all people in the Valley have felt the goodness of TVA. True. TVA as an agency has had a lot of authority to design, implement, and oversee projects they deem to be worthy in the entire region. And they aren't bound by local elections to do this. It is a federal corporation. What is a federal corporation? It's a corporation designed by Congress to perform a public service. The U.S. Postal Service is an example of a federal corporation. But there's no other agency in the U.S. quite like TVA. Uh, we're, we're a very unique critter out there in the world. That was a nice quick education on TVA. <laughs> Thanks. But let's get back to the Teleco Reservoir and more about what we learned when I was out there. Actually, I never fished a lot. His granddaddy did. We worked. <laughs> Dad was a worker, yeah, and he was a good farmer. I met another person who was involved and spent some time with him and his wife. But now my grandfather, he fished every day. And he ended up being a spokesman for the farmers. Okay, I'm Alfred Davis. I'm trying to retire. I'm only 78 years old. But I've been in the farm machinery business for 54 years. Alfred was another person whose family had owned land around the river for generations. My great-grandfather bought 360 acres on the Little Tennessee River down here in Loudoun County. In the bend of the river, it's called Wire Bend. My grandfather inherited 120 acres of it. And that's where my dad was raised, and we farmed both it and granddad's farm for years. And as time rolled on, we heard TVA was going to build the Teleco Dam, and we heard they were going to take all of the bend of the river farm and 60 acres of the home place where I was raised. But Alfred's reaction to this news was quite different than Carolyn's. So I went in the machinery business. Oh, wow. So he just kind of switched gears. But if he wasn't farming the land anymore, why did he become a spokesperson for the farmers? I guess because I, like, I like to talk. I'll talk. Okay. <laughs> now, like Alfred said, news of the possible Teleco project started to reach the community in the early 60s. Carolyn's family often discussed it around the supper table. It wasn't anything Mom and Daddy dwelled on, but they would say, well, you know, Mama read the paper, like I told you earlier, from front to back. And she would say, I saw in the paper, TVA said blah, blah. Or uh, Daddy would say, well, Lee Stukesbury told me he heard that he saw something, something. I knew that from our conversations from around the table that it was a possibility that there might be a dam, you know, and there might not be a dam. It was just sort of like, is there an alien behind that tree? Well, I don't know. Surely not. Oh, that would never happen. TVA submitted nearly a dozen requests to Congress to get this project funded. And finally, after years, Congress authorized $3.5 million towards the Teleco project. We knew TVA was coming. We just didn't know when. The first one in our community that went was Jackson Chapel Baptist Church. And... It was bought in 68. But the methods by which they began to buy up the land they would need for the project were, according to Carolyn, extremely suspicious. 
She got right into it on the phone with me the first time I talked to her. And when they came to our community, Ariel, they went to the sick, the old, the ones that had the least property. Somehow or another, they found out who in the community or on, the, on your road had loose lips. And they would go to them and find out, did, you, did, did so-and-so up the road owe any money? Are they a good farmer? Uh, do you think they'll sell? Alfred had some surprising things to say about this as well. In fact, when we went in business, I started doing business with people down in, that had lost land to Butts Bar and Mountain Hill and some of those. And they would tell me how TVA did them. And I thought to myself, I didn't tell them, I didn't say to them, I just sympathized with them. But I thought, now, you know, they've exaggerated. This, is, this has been so bad, them losing their property, that they've exaggerated this. Nobody would do anybody like that. I was wrong. They did do people that way. Uh, I, I couldn't believe it, and I don't blame people for not believing it. I really thought the government would not do them that dirty. This is our government. It's the best government in the world. Carolyn and Alfred described an approach that seemed highly manipulative in order to get landholders to turn over their property. See, they took 38,000 acres. So they had 38,000 acres to appraise. And they would digity-dodgity, and that was part of their method. And they used to divide and conquer. They'd go over here and buy this guy's farm, and then they'd go over here and buy one. And then they could say, well, we bought this for $200 an acre. And they did. I mean, they, they just, uh, and they told the people, uh, well, you can take us to court. It's been done for. We always win. You, you couldn't organize a fight. It's like each family had to do their own fighting until finally the Alfred's family and the McCall's, that we started finally gathering some of the ones that were left and uniting and going, okay, they did this here, they did that there. Early on, before TVA had yet acquired funding, Aubrey Wagner, who was the chairman of TVA at the time, had spoken to 600 residents of the valley at the Little Tennessee River Valley Association meeting about the project. And they opposed the project. I think it was 65 when the, the Association for the Preservation of the Little Tennessee River was formed. And they supported different lawsuits and sent people to Washington to, to help lobby. And all around the region, other groups started popping up in support of saving the river. And then there was the Tennessee Endangered Species Group. And then there was the River Alliance, Little Tennessee River Alliance Group. And so they were fighting. And then there was the Tennessee Trout Fisherman Group, the Sierra Club, and the Audubon Society. And... I don't know how many groups. And then there was the small band of farmers. But even with so much support coming from near and far, with people who had all different motivations for saving the river, the local residents were still unable to stand up against the influence of TBA. The bad part was when somebody sold out, they never came back to a meeting because they were ashamed. They didn't want anybody to say, well, how much did you get? They didn't want him to tell anybody what they got. And see, they promised prosperity. They promised all you people ain't got a job. Oh, you're going to have a big job once we get this dam built. We're going to just bring in droves of industry. So people that had no involvement, oh, they're for it. The people who might stand to benefit from new industry, a new town, without losing their land, were, of course, siding with the dam. And they put out signs that said, building a better environment. We didn't need saving. We liked where we lived. 
we liked our home. The publicity they put out, combined with the way TVA approached the community, defines Carolyn's feelings about this time, and the TVA in general. That whole ordeal was insulting, humiliating, downgrading. They looked at you as if you were a peon and walked around you like you stunk. And almost everyone I spoke to about this story is filled with regret and longing. Regret for what happened to the river, of course, but also longing for what they missed. Truth is, we didn't I didn't appreciate the land. I mean, we had had it. Those river bottoms were just topsoil. No rock, you know, it was just ground, beautiful ground. And as Americans, we're all that way. We're living here better than anybody in the world. At least a little thing happens, we get upset. So we really didn't appreciate the land as much as we should have. Support for Middle of Everywhere comes from Kentucky Humanities. An affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Kentucky Humanities is dedicated to bringing the humanities to classrooms and communities across the state, promoting literacy and civil discourse, building pride in the Commonwealth, and telling all of Kentucky's stories. Learn more at kyhumanities.org. When we left off, TVA had started approaching residents in various ways to buy up the land. The actual construction on Teleco did not begin until 1967. Appraisers were afoot. And it's amazing at this point how Carolyn and Alfred's separate stories sound so similar. But in um, 1969, in March, Mom and Daddy had a visit by their very first face-to-face encounter with a TVA appraiser. I came home one night, and there said a big white car. I said, that's the TVA buyer. It was about 8 o'clock in the night. So I went in the front door to the house, instead of like I always did, went in the back door. And he came and said that he was going to be there for the TVA and land was going to be taken for the dam and he was there to appraise. And this big fellow was sitting there. He jumped up and introduced himself. I don't remember his name, but he was a TVA buyer. Mother and Dad were sitting there. And Mom and Daddy said, uh, the place isn't for sale. And he had just told them the amount of money. Dad thought that was for the 60 acres they were taking that was relatively poor ground where we were raised. And Dad said, uh, okay, what are you going to give for the home place at Morganton that lays on the river? And he said, uh, well, Daddy said, you might as well leave. So he left. He said, Mr. Davis, that is the total amount for all of the property we're taking. Dad said, hell, I'll freeze before I take that. <laughs> he always said, don't get excited, don't get excited now, don't get excited. You can refuse to take this, and you can sign a paper tonight saying you're refusing, and we'll send three independent appraisers to come, and they may pay you more. Well, he came back, oh, less than a week, and wanted to appraise again. And Daddy said, no, because we're miles from the dam. We're not on the main channel. We're on a plateau. We knew it would not be underwater. So then we weren't approached, Ariel, for five years. But all around us, uh, our grandpa and grandma were approached and dealt with. Daddy's uncle was bought, 
Miss Nellie, Mrs. Jackson, our teacher, Mrs. Grace Burton, the Carpenter Farm, which was a big river bottom farm. It was in March, been being pretty weather, and these three guys came and they had a TVA guy with them. And uh, we walked over and saw the 60 acres there where I was raised. And they said, well, it's getting about 11 o'clock. We'll go to dinner. And we'll meet you at Morganton at the home place at 1 o'clock. Okay. Well, in this part of the country, we can have it pretty now, and two hours later it can be blowing cold and rain. We went in, ate dinner, and drove on over to Morganton, and it clouded up and the wind started blowing. And these guys were dressed in sport pants and light shirts, and the wind was blowing. It dropped about 15 degrees. And they got out of their vehicles, and they were just shivering, <laughs> shivering cold. One of them said, I believe we can see it from here, don't you? He said, yeah, I believe we can too. Less than 10 minutes, they was back in their car and gone. Perhaps not the most thorough of appraisals, but the Richies, they were steadfast against any appraisals on their property. That Christmas, we were served eviction letters and the condemnation paper. All these local attorneys, if you went to them, they'd say, well, we hate it, but you can't fight TVA. Local lawyers wouldn't touch it. We started researching for an attorney, and we found one in Russellville, Kentucky. We filed suit against them, and they went to buying everybody else, and they waited till the very last before they took us to court. And we didn't hear nothing from them. They went around buying up everybody else. They didn't contact us at all. They about had everybody bought up before we got to go to court. And we went before Judge Taylor. There were 50, so many lawyers that participated in a survey in Knoxville of the federal judges. And there were just like 17 judges and he was at the rock bottom of the, the worst seven. And the other lawyers that were interviewed said that they would not go before his bench if there was any way possible. He's known as the TVA judge. And he was nice, he sat there and listened to the case. Then he ruled in TVA's favor that that was in a fire price. And for that 180 acres, it was $43,550. About 250 an acre. But Alfred told me about an event even more appalling that happened before they sold to TVA. We were sitting at the, in the living room one night and the phone rung and Daddy answered it. And I noticed he started turning white. I said to myself, something was wrong. He hung up the phone and said, well... A local guy had seen something at his granddad's old house. He said he just came through there and there was a bunch of TVA trucks at your granddad's house. And he said, wonder what they was doing there. And I said, it wasn't any good. It was by then after dark, but we got in the vehicle and took off over here. And when we drove in the driveway and the light shined on the house, it looked like the shambles. The doors was knocked in, the windows was knocked in. We went inside, the porch posts were knocked down. There were literally walls knocked all down inside and the hardwood floors were busted. Of course, TV didn't wouldn't admit doing that, but their trucks, were there. five or six trucks wasn't sitting there doing nothing. They destroyed the house so that nobody could live there. Wow. I'm beginning to understand why Carolyn and Alfred have such negative feelings towards the TVA. It sounds like they felt swindled and looked down on, abandoned, 
and manipulated by the very agency that was supposed to be helping them. And it pervaded everything in their lives. Even the relationships in their own families became tethered to this. And she was just a little, 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 little bitty thing. Yeah. And she was one to take charge. I was particularly moved by the admiration that grew in Carolyn for her mother. She has saved her mother's letters, newspaper clippings, protest materials, maps, project proposals, anything and everything that went into this fight. She took a small portion of her collection out to the Fort Loudon Park where we met to show me, and it was overwhelming to see these stacks of archives on the picnic tables. Here it is. She read several letters to me, like this one her mother wrote to a neighbor about their hearing. He never wears a hat because he couldn't ever find one large enough to go on his swelled head. As I went back through all this, I just giggled and laughed, and it was hilarious, even though it wasn't a funny thing. Jean Ritchie wrote these incredible works of writing out of a fury and immediacy that ended up being really poetic records of her emotional state. Once I did get all this stuff put together and I saw Mama's writing, I mean, I, I knew Mama was intelligent, but... I didn't really know how, how intelligent until I was older. And unfortunately, Jean's talent was lost on the jaded brains of politicians. From your reply to me, I have come to these conclusions. One, you think your hands are tied and you are unwilling to help us. Two, you've fallen a victim of TVA's superb methods of Congress brainwashing tactics. Three, you're admitting TVA is greater and has more power than the federal government. Four, you're deaf and blind to a citizen's plea for help who is in danger of becoming a victim of an organization that considers this area their own private playpen to manipulate as it so desires. As I view the unbridled tactics of the TVA under the strict regimentation and supervision of its chairman, I can very well see a strong resemblance to another strong chairman, Mao of China and the money will be flowing to his coffers once he presents his plan to you and to Congress in the name of progress and helping a poor, depraved area and its serfs. You and he sure have a warped idea in my judgment about what constitutes a depressed area. This was once a beautiful, thriving area till the TVA moved in with its worthless teleco project. Now this area has fallen buildings and grown up farmland. But the Little Tennessee River flows majestically along, concealing its eternal sadness and joy. In East Tennessee forever, Mrs. Jean Ritchie. Carolyn told me several times that this experience helped define who she is today. You have all these lifelong connections. It's just like you're interwoven with whatever they did to your community, like if you were an abused person mama. It's daddy. It's not just a story. It's a life. And it's all going to die if it doesn't get recorded. Now, from TVA's vantage point, dealing with the farmers may have been one of the easier obstacles for this project. When I think about that time, I kind of think of, about it as like the wild, wild west. Um, because some of those environmental laws were so new. Ah, yes. This is the part of the story I knew a little bit about. 
that's when the first environmental legislation is passed. You get the National Historic Preservation Act in 1966. Um, you get the Endangered Species Act. The National Environmental Policy Act comes along, I believe, in 1970. The Environmental Defense Fund in 67, the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act in 68, the National Environmental Policy Act in 69, Federal Water Pollution Control Act in 72, and a couple of executive orders mandating other environmental protections. In short, there was a lot of new stuff to account for. (laughs) Yeah. But as we know, TVA proved to be up to the task perhaps in large part because of who was leading the agency, the chairman you heard Gene mention. So Mr. Wagner, he was known as Red Wagner. Uh, (laughs) I guess he had red hair. Aubrey Red Wagner became chairman of the TVA in 1962 after being part of the TVA since almost its formation in 1934. Red Wagner is the only person that I'm aware of that has gone from an entry-level all the way up to being chairman of the board of TVA. He was hugely influential. Maybe things were different in those days, but he would actually receive phone calls directly from the president of the United States, like this one he had with President Johnson. Wagner, yes, sir. Are there any possibilities of our ever getting in the TVA program in the near future steam plant up in eastern Kentucky? Well, Mr. President, the... uh... One of the problems now, as you know, is that we've had this cutback. He was also known as Mr. TVA and seen widely as the benefactor of the Tennessee Valley through the TVA. But he was increasingly challenged for his projects, like here, during a discussion of TVA dams and strip mining on a show Comment on Kentucky. Al Smith was asking Wagner question after question about various what he considered to be unenvironmental projects the TVA was taking on. Uh, Two decades later... Many conservationists who once championed the agency are, are enraged over the effects of stripping. Uh, they say that you've changed directions and that you've made TVA, uh, that your policies have helped make TVA into a mammoth corporation. Smith asked Wagner why the TVA was getting into developing areas for recreation if their primary purpose was to provide power and flood control. Mr. Wagner. I, uh, you. Uh, at the beginning of that question, Al, you said uh, TVA's primary purpose was... I should have said one of its primary purposes. Yeah, its primary purpose is really the, right. to help the people of the region develop their resources, all of them, mm-hmm. uh, in ways that will help them to build a better quality of living. There are a lot of people and organizations, and now we know laws that were put in the path of this project. And it's amazing it still got done. And that Wagner may have been a big part of why. And we haven't even met or talked about nearly all the people who protested. Like this one very important man who is kind of at the center of all this. In our first interview, I asked him to start me at the beginning. All right. It starts 200 million years ago when the Appalachians rose up from the bed of a sea. Zig. I am Zygmunt Jan Platter. I grew up in the Appalachians uh, up north in Pennsylvania. My father was in the Polish diplomatic corps. So it was 14, I was 14 years old before I realized that I could really be an American. And just like every other fighter in this story, his constitution and stamina were developed early on. Farming the land gave me a sense, 
And my father also, the idea of noblesse oblige. He was raised to, to run a medieval plantation, basically, is what it was back in the old country. And here, we had no money, but we had 80 acres. And with a built-in appreciation for environmental stewardship, things he witnessed happening to his childhood surroundings forged his future. I, I was a fly fisherman starting when I was a little boy. The little stream where I fished was poisoned by a landfill of toxics built upstream. I was in a public speaking class. I've never told anybody this. They said, well, find something that is dear to your heart that you can speak about. And so I talked about the pollution of that little stream. And I thought to myself, geez, this, this really is significant, not just to my little stream, but to the way a society makes decisions where to put a toxic landfill. And that's what got me into an environmental law. After a Bachelor of Arts at Princeton and a law degree at Yale, he was brought into the Valley. I went down to Tennessee as a very junior professor on the law faculty. Those were the days I was wearing earth shoes and a turtleneck. I had read in the magazines that TVA had built 60 or more dams and was trying to eliminate the last 30 miles of really high quality trout water. 15,000 acres of the very best farmland in the United States in one place. But when I went down there, I wouldn't fish the little tea because I didn't want to fall in love with the place that I was going to lose. And perhaps just by listening to him, you can tell that Zig is a very passionate and kind of eccentric person. Yeah, a little bit. He was teaching an environmental law class and decided he didn't want to be all conventional with the final assignment. I don't believe in doing just an exam, and I don't believe in doing just a paper. So they did a short exam. And then each of you is going to do an individual paper to get deeply into something. I had this student, Hank Hill. And he came and knocked on my door and said, you know, I was at this bar drinking beer with some grad students from fish biology. And they told me that they'd found an endangered species, a little two and a half inch fish that exists nowhere else in the world. Uh, and is right in the middle of the Teleco Dam project. Do you think that's enough for a 10 page paper? And I said, yes. I think that's going to be enough for a 10-page paper. So I said to Hank, I think I want to go fishing now in the little Tennessee River. Enter Zig, the hero wearing earth shoes. The first time that um, he came was to one of the Association for the Preservation meetings over at the fort. and. Um, so he came in, and Hank Hill. And we went to a meeting one night, and this kid, I thought he was a kid, he was a, looked like a college student, and he said, uh, have they cut any of your old river banks off? I said, no, they cut right up to us, but they went around us, they didn't cut any of ours. And he said, boy, if they had, we'd have put them in court in a minute. And I thought, who is this guy going to put them in court? <laughs> Turned out he's sick. He always wore turtlenecks. I don't think I've ever seen him with a collar. <laughs> and he wore loafers. 
and he wore sweaters. But he was always pleasant, always had a good smile, always slender, always made you feel welcome. Uh, we helped Zig anyway. I'd get up middle of the night tonight if he needed me. It's the greatest fellow it's ever been. That night, when we pulled the farmers together and said, you know, you've been kicked in the teeth for all these years. Your, your farms have been under the gun. Most of your neighbors have been bulldozed and are out. But there's one more way that maybe you could save your farms. That's next time in the story of Tanasi. You can find images of Teleco Reservoir, Carolyn and Alfred, and all the people we talked with at middleofeverywherepod.org or Instagram and Facebook at middleofeverywherepod and Twitter at rural underscore stories. If you want to be even more involved with the conversation, sign up for our newsletter so you'll always be the first to know about new episodes and interesting things going on at WKMS and in our region. The recording of LBJ and Aubrey Wagner was found and acquired in the LBJ Presidential Library. This episode of Middle of Everywhere was produced by me, Ariel Lavery, with editorial help from my co-host, Austin Carter. Our editor is Naomi Starvin. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Time on the String Sound Studio in Paducah, Kentucky. Other scoring was from APM Music. Marketing and sponsorship support comes from Dixie Lynn. Thank you to our intern, Annie Davis, who has done much-needed fact-checking. Middle of Everywhere is a production of WKMS and PRX. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting a private organization funded by the American people.